Why did Jesus die on the cross? That's the question we're discussing today on The Hero of the Story, presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truth of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me is Josh Hayes. Josh, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm excited about the, about the topic. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, one that that is without controversy or, or doesn't receive consternation from, from some, but, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I'm excited because we can, uh, in talking about what we're talking about, we can really get to the heart of the gospel. That's right. That's right. So we are talking about Christ as propitiation. A bit of a mouthful in terms of the, the word propitiation itself. Um, it's one that we don't typically use in everyday language. Um, and, if you are not careful, you are as likely to have a slip and refer to it as Christ as precipitation. But Jesus is not rain, and sure. so, uh, but he does rain. He does rain like that, and then he That's also true. causes it to rain on the just and the uh, the unjust. This is true. Uh, this is so true. We do, there's our puns for the day. Now we're not allowed. To I think we I think we filled. We've had our fill of all of those and uh and our remaining listener says amen but um <laughs> talking about propitiation though you got to talk about propitiation about talking about punishment oh yeah. so, sorry that was the last one last okay one. all right I had, I had to get it in yeah. there yeah all right we're done okay so <laughs> so uh let's do what we let's do what we typically do here we'll start off by um unpacking the explanation of of this doctrine is found in the 99 Essentials. As a reminder, there's a video on this as well um, that uh, you can find on YouTube and through the through the Gospel Project Resource Library as well. So check that out. All right. So uh, Christ as propitiation is defined as follows. Uh, because of God's righteousness and holiness, humanity's sins must be atoned for uh, in order for people to be reconciled to God. As the propitiation for sin, Christ's death is the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. Christ's propitiation for our sins demonstrates both God's great love towards sinners as well as the necessary payment that results from the penalty of sin. So if we were going to summarize this down a little bit more simply, let's say let's get this down to... A sentence, it would be this. Jesus paid our punishment for our sin. Josh, do you think that's a sufficient summary? Does that or does that go a little bit too simplistic? No, not too simplistic at all. Propitiation uh, has this uh, inherent uh, connotation or association with the removal of guilt. Uh, but in a in, in the biblical context, uh, guilt comes with the consequence, the, the built-in understanding that God is the one who and and enforces and and uh, and judges morality and misdoings in His uh, universe. And mm-hmm. so th- this this idea, what we'll see in the tra- in the in the passages that we look at, this the word propitiation. Uh, sometimes the, the Greek word behind it, uh, hilasterion. For you, uh, Bible uh, word, original language nerds out there, hilasterion. Um, that's the that's the word that's used in the New Testament to refer to this concept. Sometimes you'll you'll see 
it translated mercy, uh, mercy seat like you do in the CSB. That's a that's a recent update actually to that mm-hmm. translation. But bef- and other translations, you might see it translated as propitiation, or sometimes you'll see it as a expiation or atoning sacrifice or sacrifice of atonement. And all of those require explanation, so we can't expect too much out of the out of the translation to just do all the do all the homework and unpack all the all the meaning for us. But this word has a has a history and usage from the the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? For those who might not know, uh, you oftentimes you'll see it referred to in maybe the the cross references or the study notes in, in study Bibles as the LXX, the seventy. Um, so the Greek Roman numerals LXX. Well, this is the Greek. Uh, translation of the Old Testament it would have been the 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 most popular uh, Old Testament translation used around the uh, the time um, uh, that Jesus was was on the earth. For instance, it had to do with Greeks being scattered throughout the. Uh, the the greek empire sorry not greeks but jews being scattered throughout the uh greek empire during the days of alexander the great and as they uh grew up outside of their homeland uh they uh, learned to speak greek so that they wanted their people to have a translation in the in the language that they spoke uh but anyways uh to abbreviate my commentary on the septuagint here uh <laughs> that that word is used in the uh when when referring to the atonements the sacrifices of atonement uh described in uh passages like leviticus 1 through 7 and also in uh chapter 16 with the with the day of day of atonement Mm -hmm. and so you'll you see debates about whether it has this inherent built-in understanding of wrath or if it's just a removal of uh of guilt or the the stain of sin or being ceremonial unclean because not all sacrifices were were offered because of sin uh but often people will point to this this idea of the the offering of the sacrifice at the altar on the mercy seat was what assuaged or deterred god's wrath and we see god's wrath poured out when you have improper sacrifice or Mm -hmm. unauthorized fire it might be called uh, offered in the in the account with uh, uh, Nadab and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons, who mm-hmm. uh, not not your not your sons, Aaron, but the, the biblical Aaron, by the way, just to make sure. Our listeners yeah, uh, we haven't had uh, had that talk with Hudson yet about uh, about on inappropriate sacrifices, oh, but no, uh, no. and you don't have sons named Nadab or Abihu either. So no, uh, that was a hard no from Emily. Mm. Oh man, yeah. Sucks. But no. anyway, you have that. You have this understanding presented in, in that text Leviticus 10 specifically where God's wrath uh, his anger uh, his judgment can uh, will manifest will be demonstrated uh, when worship is not properly properly offered to God when God's not honored as he is uh, just, uh, prescribed for himself to, to be honored and it's it's built around this this sort of sacrifice context yeah, yeah. Josh I'm really glad that you you have kind of have brought in that Old Testament background to this um, because that is something that we do need to understand, particularly as we unpack, as we just take a quick look at a few places in the New Testament where we see Jesus explicitly um, described in these terms as the, as the, the uh, atoning sacrifice or propitiation or, um, or as the mercy seat, um, as again, we see in some of the new, the updates to the CSB. Um, one of the things, um, because if we, if we don't remember that this concept is rooted in the imagery of the old Testament, we get very confused very quickly. Right, and, right. 
uh, particularly in our view of the Bible itself. Um, this is one of those those connecting points that reminds us that the Bible is all one big story. It's it's consistent from end to end. That everything that happened in the in the Old Testament was really um, uh, often foreshadowing something that Christ was going to do in its fullness. Right. Um, and so that, uh, that his sacrifice is the substance of what was to come. This is some of the stuff that, that uh, lo- uh, longer time listeners uh, may, uh, may remember um, being spoken of in our uh, episode on the aspects of the atonement, um, which dealt with um, a, a little more of the prismatic uh, picture mm-hmm. Uh, that that exists within scripture of the atonement um in this in in that though even uh this uh this propitiation um aspect of it um that is that is a core element of it and if we don't have that we actually don't have an atonement ultimately right so um so three places in the new testament where we see this this called out explicitly Include uh, Romans three uh, twenty five verses twenty uh, and twenty six, uh, which says God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so that he so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith. In Jesus, and so there, there again, there's that explicit call out there. Um, Hebrews chapter two um, does this as well in verse seventeen, saying, "Therefore he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people." So this is this passage, this verse. Uh, combines again some of the other imagery and sh- and foreshadowing of Christ with his high priestly role being the true priest that Aaron was a mere shadow of, and uh, not only being the sacrifice, but the but the one who would present that sacrifice. And then finally, First uh, John four ten, love consists in this, that not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. All right, so those are just three places where we see this explicitly called out, like, uh, like I mentioned. Now, Josh, are there any... Uh, are there any areas of caution or there, what, what kind of things do we need to understand about this doctrine to really grasp it or begin to grasp it? I guess, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. First, and that, that's a great place to start to kind of know where the uh, places people are prone to get into error and some kind of some general guidelines is that, uh, and understanding that, that Jesus was sinless himself. That's how the, the gospels present, present him. That's how the uh, letters of the New Testament pr- present him. And really, you can't make sense of the Old Testament storyline being fulfilled unless you have uh, this figure coming in to uh, be the last Adam who obeys God perfectly, the, the true son of David who's faithful, uh, Moses who can really uh, and truthfully re- lead his people into the into the promised land. Uh, so 
we need to understand that Jesus' death, and we talk about, you know, sometimes we'll use the language, uh, God punished Jesus on the cross. Well, you know, it's probably not good just to say in isolation. You need to always have that uh, put in the proper context. God, well, God punished him on behalf of our sin. Our sin was associated with him, was tied to him as our, as our representative. He was our substitute. You'll hear it talked about. So we need to first understand that Jesus' death was in any way uh, punishment for anything that he did as if he uh, could do any wrong as, as the God man who uh, not only died the death that we should die and atoning for our sins, but he lived the life that we should live, but can't because we're already uh, sinners and inclined to, to sin. So uh, you think of second Corinthians five twenty one that God made him who knew no sin um, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, there's a, mm-hmm. there's an, an expression in the new Testament of his sinlessness. Um, you have similar statements, uh, in first Peter two Hebrews two uh, about his, about Jesus, uh, righteousness, his, his obedience being, um, c- complete and him being, um, without one without sin. Yeah. Uh, but this really, uh, also gets to the scandal that is that is Christianity at, at its core message that God became a human being in order to die, and He died on behalf of other human beings. But just that mere claim that when God showed up and became a human while remaining truly and fully God, though also truly and fu- fully human, mm-hmm. He He died the criminal's death. He he died the most, the most scandalous, embarrassing way to die at that time in history with, with crucifixion, something that the Persians invented and the Romans perfected, as, as they say. And we, we think of Paul in First Corinthians 1 and into 2 talking about, you know, this, this whole message of the cross, the logic of the cross is, is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Well, you know, the Jews at that time didn't conceive of you know, God mm-hmm. becoming a man and let alone the Messiah coming and showing up to die. No, the, the Messiah is going to come up to rule and reign and vindicate us and finally yeah. set up, set up God's kingdom on earth. And then it's foolishness to the Greeks because, well, isn't this stuff called matter? Does the physical experience, isn't it bad and tainted with evil? We need to escape that. So the divine, a divine person is going to come and, and take on a physical fleshly nature in order to suffer no that doesn't that doesn't make sense that's counterintuitive to them so it's foolishness mm-hmm. to the greeks and then even into uh, major world religions of both the uh ancient and into current day you think of it to, to uh people who follow islam mm-hmm. uh it this is a, this is a scandal they would say that it's impossible for Allah to come into this direct contact with creation in, in the incarnation. So really when, when we were saying that Jesus became, or Jesus, he, he was embodied once he was named Jesus, but the son of God becoming embodied, embodied to die as an atonement for sin, as a propitiation, that, that, re- that really strikes at the, at the heart of the, uh, of the Christian message and why that is such a scandal to, to human ears of, yeah. of any culture or time, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is it is so bizarre that we can't un, that we can't quite wrap our minds around it. I mean, bizarre in the sense that it's it doesn't it, it doesn't fit with how we think reality works. Mm-hmm. Um it's logically consistent within the within the workings of scripture and the way that God has designed the world. It's just 
our understanding. It's too big for us to grasp. Mm -hmm. So, um, which really kind of takes us into the next point, which is that when we think about Jesus' death, we actually have to um, have to basically do our read on Jesus' death and and really his resurrection as well through the through our understanding of the Trinity. Right. And so. Um, so for those who, who, who may be tuning in for the first time or may have simply forgotten, the Trinity is the, is the Christian understanding of, of God's nature as one God who simultaneously exists as three persons. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three are fully and equally God, and yet they are distinct from one another. Um, that is a very that's about as simple as an explanation as we're going to be able to get in a short time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but as a as a bonus as a bonus aside, because you know we can't not do it. Um, don't um, if you see an analogy about um, uh, about eggs, not correct. If you see it about states of water, also not correct. If you see it about, if you see people doing stuff related to clovers, really not correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, basically, any analogy that someone tries to come at you with is um, unintentionally heresy. Right, so. right. Because it gets it to the fundamental difference between God and everything else. There's creator yes. and then there's creation and there is no analogy for the Trinity. God God as he exists in himself. Uh, yes. Finite beings don't experience anything like that. We see God's character reflected in creation and so yes. Trinity is helpful to understand how uh, you know, there's this debate in philosophy: is 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 reality more one, or is it more many? Is it is it is it unity, or is it plurality? To put it in more philosophical terms, yeah. But in God, we see that these are equally ultimate. That God's one being, right? But mm-hmm. He's three in person. These three, what theologians call subsistences, subsistences. It's a hard word to say sometimes. Yes. Um, that much like we're, propitiation. Much like propitiation, yeah. <laughs> that that discussion precipitated this. Yeah, see what it did there. But uh, but these three subsistences, as theologians have called them, these these persons who are defined by their mutual relations to one another, how the Father relates to the Son, and the Spirit relates uh, to the Father and the Son as well. They're just they're distinct, but they uh, consist of the in- infinite nature uh, of God itself, and so there is no impersonal aspect of god because the three persons are are uh inherently and necessarily infinite and so that's why that's what's really important when we have our understanding of the trinity that this is god he exists outside of time he he's a he is eternally trinity he is eternally uh full and blissful perfect mm-hmm. without uh without any sort of fluctuation or, or change you can't be any more than he already is you think of yeah. this almost in uh psalm 90 verse 2 from everlasting to everlasting you are god god can be none less than what he already is as as god i am who i am is as uh, he revealed himself to moses in the, in the in the burning bush so yeah that's that's how theologians have historically thought about god's being and in, in, in light of a light of scripture so when we're thinking about the trinity in light of the propitiation or atonement that jesus offered we want to be very careful that we don't uh communicate to people that god somehow changed 
uh, that the, the father or the spirit somehow suffered through the crucifixion. You'll, you'll sometimes hear uh, pastors and leaders mistakenly talk about mm-hmm. the father's pain or anguish. And that that's really, uh, if you, if you survey church history, that that's always been associated with, with, with heresy. Uh, yes. And that there's a there was a modalistic heresy, uh, specifically known as patripassianism. And I know we're using big terms today. And there's another yeah. P word, uh, patripassianism, which just means uh, that the father suffered, and that that can't be true because what we're affirming in the incarnation and in the atonement subsequent to that uh, is that only the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became human. Uh, the divine mm-hmm. nature is incapable of su- uh, incapable of suffering. It's what theologians refer to as divine impassibility, meaning that nothing external to God can act on God in such a way to change him or deprive him of anything. Yeah. Right? So we, we could put it that way. And so this is what made the incarnation necessary if there was going to be atonement, that the son had to take on a human nature in order to live an authentically human life and then to die this death is our substitute is our human savior uh who stood in our in our place uh you 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 had to have the incarnation so that's one of the one of the things to keep in mind and understanding why the father uh nor the spirit uh could not have suffered uh, in christ's offering of himself as atonement and so you think of the the cry of dereliction, as it's called, as Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, mm-hmm. God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me in some translations? Uh, this is not saying that the Father and the Son were separated temporarily as, as if there could be a change in, in the Trinity. That, that would go against the uh, larger historical witness to, to what uh, Christians have understood the Bible to teach about God, God as Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um so it's that Jesus is our human representative. He was experiencing the curse for sin, which is it's separation from God. We talked about that uh, on our last uh, episode about uh, last, last doctrine episode about hell, that hell is this, this, this experience of exile and abandonment outside of the, the blessed presence of God is covenantal yeah. blessing. Well, Jesus experienced covenantal curse as a human being. God treated him as if he, uh, were sinful, even though he wasn't because he was representing sinners mm-hmm. a- as he died. And because God is Trinity, even the offering of the atonement was a Trinitarian act. Now, again, father and spirit didn't participate in the same way that the son did, but they're, they're, they're intrinsically involved just like in all God's works. God acts necessarily and gloriously as, as Trinity. Uh, he creates uh, through the word of the son is, is the, is the son is called the, the word elsewhere. And he, and it's by the spirit you can see in Genesis one. Uh, so, and you see in the incarnation, the, it's the father who sends the son mm-hmm. to become, uh, to become a human being. And then in Mary's womb, it's the spirit who hovers over her, you know, the presence of the spirit was said to overshadow her there in Luke one uh, 35. And so you see Trinitarian action and, and explicit, almost um yeah described in, in scripture in creation and incarnation well it's the same with atonement you have language in hebrews 9 13 and 14 that it that he offered himself uh as an atonement through the eternal spirit uh referring to the the, the holy spirit so and then in the resurrection you can find plentiful passages that show the father 
God the Father raising Jesus from the dead and it being by the power of the Holy Spirit. That that's you can find that yeah. in manifold way in, in Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. So no changing God and Himself in the atonement, but but the good news is that is that it changes everything for us. So. Uh, to tr- try to transition us out of this 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 harping on the on the Trinity, which is re- really in, really important. So I don't mean to apologize for it, but just want to let yeah. listeners know there's light at the end of the tunnel coming. Um, <laughs> but God, he he's immutable. He's steadfast. Is is the doctrine described in our our description earlier mm-hmm. said that uh, he it's his righteousness and holiness that requires him to uh, punish sin. Mm-hmm. But it's in his love seeking to meet that demand of righteousness that he sent his son to to die for us so it's his immutable and steadfast love toward us as his creatures and even more so as as uh uh as sinners that that is behind god's sending of his son in order to remain the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus use that language that we read earlier from romans 3 uh that it demonstrates his immutable love and also his immutable righteousness that he can forgive the sin without uh, he, he can he can forgive the sin of the sinner without overlooking the sin itself. He punishes yeah. sin in Jesus and Jesus is Romans eight. One says there's no condemnation uh, for those in Christ Jesus. But as it goes on to say by verse four is that God can God condemns sin in the flesh in Jesus. Yes. So that, that's an important note note to make before we uh, we move on. Is yeah. there anything you want to add to that or well, to uh, describe why this is an uncomfortable doctrine for a yeah. lot of people? Well, I'll get to I'll get to the uncomfortable part for a minute or in a minute, but I mean it go but one thing just to uh, just to reemphasize in in what you were talking about there uh, a moment ago that um, you know, there's often this question about whether or not about, you know, is the atonement of Jesus, you know, you know, is it a uh, is it a legal is it a legal fiction, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's one of those questions that that Paul himself is actually addressing in the book of Romans. Right. Is, you know, is this is is this whole idea of justification by faith? Is that something that's just made up, or is it something that is actually legit? And if so, what happened to people who died, who were who believed in who believed in Yahweh, the true God, mm-hmm. um, who believed in Him before Jesus died, and before well before He was born too, <laughs> um, in right, terms right. of His incarnation? Again, very specific, um, since you know eternally existent and all that. But. Um, <laughs> Um, anytime we talk about Jesus, we basically have to, we, we will die by a, the death of a thousand caveats, Josh. Right, right. That right. is, uh, that's something that, that Brian and I, uh, often had to do. But, um, one of the, but this, uh, but that takes us back to Romans, Romans three, which we read earlier that, um, you know, that, that the father, the father had, had passed over sins that had been previously committed. And so they weren't, um, so those who had genuine saving faith were in, uh, who, uh, who were following Yahweh before the incarnation of Jesus, they were legitimate. They were legitimately saved. They were legitimate believers. Mm -hmm. Um, what, 
saved them was not their atone uh, their their sacrifices of atonement that they offered through their priests it was it was what those those symbols pointed toward exactly. which was Jesus so um now that get let's get back to to a little more discomfort here um because this doctrine really does make people uncomfortable because um and that I remember asking this question um in a small group once couldn't God have chosen a different way to save people than through killing his son? And so this really, what this question does, whether the, the person asking realizes it or not, um, is it, it uh, raises the issue of two different views of the necessity of the atonement. Um, so, did it need to happen at all? Um, so the the first view is that if God decided to save people, uh, He freely chose this, uh, this, or perhaps arbitrarily um, chose atonement as the basis to forgive sinners because He could have chosen to save them through many other ways. So basically, it was, well, He just He just decided to go that route, but really He could have done whatever He wanted. Um, and that is, that is a view that I think is, I certainly see, um, presented more in the gotcha games Mm -hmm. that, uh, that are out there trying to either position God as being wicked and vindictive, uh, the way that we see the, the lowercase gods of, Roman Roman and Greek mythology behaving, who really are what gods made in our own image look like, more so than anything else. Um, so that's one view. That's one view. Um, the other view is that if God decided to save people, then some form of atonement accomplished by the death of the Son was the only way possible. Remember that um, that uh, goes back to goes back to Romans um, that that. In that, because the consequence of sin is death. This was said from the beginning, that if you so from from the first from the first warning of consequences for disobedience in the garden, that if the first humans ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the the forbidden fruit as it were, as it were, um, that they would surely die. And so they did ultimately, although even in that there, there, you know, is an interesting little bit of foreshadowing in there too, with a, with another sacrifice happening. But, um, <laughs> um, but if death is the consequence for sin, um, and the ultimate consequence for sin, then there has to be, there has to be some kind of death that can pay for it all. And so God, as the one who is just and also desiring to be the justifier of all, right. um, gave uh, functionally gave himself up mm-hmm. to do it through the Son, mm-hmm. and so the thus we see that that the atonement itself that that Christ's propitiation is actually both just and forgiving. Mm-hmm. And so that is, um, and so that is, um, 
that's just that's just really important for us to 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 recognize, especially in the face of um, one of the other discomforts that comes really out of that first view, which is that um, God that it makes God look as though he is sadistic and cruel. And so you'll see um, you'll see a fallacious argument that that got that of divine child abuse that, you know, because he arbitrarily decided this, he's putting a an innocent person on there as if as if that in a in that person had or had or had or has no say in the matter. Right, right. When what we see in Ephesians is that um actually all three members, and this goes back to what we were talking about with the Trinity earlier, mm-hmm. is that this plan of salvation was determined before the foundations of the world in a right. way that we cannot comprehend fully. Mm-hmm. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all agreed that this that that this would be carried out for their purposes, and we don't quite understand what that is. Um, it makes us because it's too big for us as finite beings, right? Um, and we kind of have to be okay with that. But we do have to remember that God is not the God that we serve the god that is real is not capricious and vindictive like the pagan like those in pagan religions where gods could be influenced by offering sacrifices whether animal or human um that when god is angry he's not angry like humans are and that wrath is a display of uh to use one of one of your frequently used words today uh it is a display of god's immutable righteousness and his set his set and determined opposition towards sin mm-hmm. so it's something that's consistent with his character from beginning to end i was just going to add on to what you were saying about the 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 two different ways of thinking about god's uh, demanding atonement in order for sinners to be made right with him. We got to remember that God didn't have to make salvation possible for anyone. Uh, He would have been good and just to leave us in our sins to be punished. And so it really shows the gracious nature of God and his loving uh, compulsion, if we could put it that way, to meet his demands and uphold his own justice. Uh, in order to to save sinners, and that's why I think think it's important to understand the gracious nature that by which God uh, offers atonement, mm-hmm. and that it gets at the heart that there there the fundamental problem is between uh, God and man, and death was a fitting uh, punishment, a fitting end for those uh, who rebelled a, a, against God, and so it, it follows that a death would be required. Uh, to atone uh, for for sin, for sin, because the the proper uh, retribution, if we could put it that way, is retribution uh, for for. Um, can I start that over? I, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I think like notifications and stuff <laughs> got my. It's all good. So um, I guess go back to where I was kind of interjecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So if we could, uh, if I could just sort of play off what you were saying with uh, regard to the different ways we can think about uh, God uh, demanding atonement and whether he had to do that in order to forgive sinners or not. We, we need to keep in perspective that God didn't have to offer salvation at all to, to anyone. 
And so the, the grounds for salvation being atonement aren't arbitrary, really gets at the heart of uh, the character of God. And that if we've offended an infinitely holy God who's worthy of our worship and is right to demand that we, that we do worship and honor and ho- obey him, it follows that death should be the uh, fitting and appropriate form for atonement, for being reconciled with him, because uh, the books need to be balanced, as it were. And if we're thinking about God's uh, rule and reign over the world in economic terms, uh, we we uh, can't just look at it as if God was just being mean and he could have, forgive, he could have forgiven uh, a lot of unjust crimes and just swept it under the rug. It's like, well, then who pays for this? This is this dirty rug and who cleans up all the all the all the broken pieces it, it, it would be as if in, in a courtroom setting to to use uh that that analogy a, a, a judge just dismissing charges uh, of murder and arson and theft and uh robbery and things things of that sort just because uh he he, he feels you know free freely compelled to to overlook them and and, and pardon guilty criminals will know we would cry foul and and in an illogical way that that applies with with god as well we would say where where is the justice if there's there's not some sort of, of atonement not some sort of a retribution or recompense uh, mm-hmm. offered and so um it's to kind of keep us going here in the direction we were about how the atonement can make us uncomfortable. People will call it, as you mentioned, uh, divine child abuse. Uh, this, this makes God uh, one. He's not a, it's not a case of cosmic child abuse. As some have called it because the son willingly offered himself. Yeah. This is voluntary, right? Jesus said in John 10, 17, 18, that uh, he lays down his life for the sheep. No one, takes it from him and he will take it up again. And you see him praying in the garden of Gethsemane that this was a plan from the, from the foundation of the world between the son and the father uh, that the the son would offer himself for a people that the father uh, would, would, would give to him. And uh, Philippians two famous passage also that, uh, that the son Christ, right. Didn't seek to exploit, exploit his, equal equal his equality with god but instead uh emptied himself by becoming in the form of a human servant and dying uh, a death by dying his death on the cross and so this is this is voluntary and willful on the son's part as you were noting the 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 three persons of the trinity were in agreement there's one will in god at least is how theologians have historically understood god's will in relation to the the trinity and so they're they're in complete harmony, complete unity in this plan. And and the reason that this whole offering and atonement to God, Christ being this atonement to uh, assuage, if we can put it that way, or deter God's wrath, isn't like pagan religions where people offered, you know, human sacrifice, burnt offerings of crops, or, or mm-hmm. slaying animals. It's not the same because in that case, the humans have conjured up this as a way to offer. An appeasement to the gods to get them, to, you know, to do what they want, whether you know, bless their car uh, crops, make make their uh, women more fertile, that that sort of that yeah. sort of thinking. And so those gods demand it from the people. Whereas in the gospel, God provides the necessary and sufficient sacrifice that is that is Christ Jesus on, on the cross, and it's out of love. It's not so that God might love us, but He sent His Son in love 
to be an atonement for sin, as we read earlier in uh, First First uh, uh, John uh, uh, chapter four, verse ten. Let's bring this home. Let's land this plane. Let's uh, let's bring this home uh, by quickly talking about a couple of differences that this doctrine makes. And so, um, so I'll I'll kick us off, and then if you have anything else that you want to add in, jump in. So, um, so the first thing, the first thing, really, what this doctrine does is it does a couple of things. The first is is that it affirms that salvation uh, comes only by faith in Jesus. If there are other ways to be saved, God would have used them to mm. save people because that would have fit with his character. Were there other ways, and he still chose this way, God would be cruel beyond measure at the sacrifice of his son. This underlies how if salvation is possible at all, it must only be by grace. God must act on our behalf if we are to be saved. So, you know, as, um, you know, as the, the, the old saying goes, is this, I, I think it's a hymn. Maybe yeah, it's a hymn. I guess this top lady, uh, rock yeah. of ages. There we like, go. See, yeah, I, I won't sing it for anybody. But no, I appreciate that. How propitiation sings, uh, you know, people say, you know, that'll preach when you're talking about certain doctrines, certain passages. Well, Really, the good t- the test of a good theology is will it will it sing? And we, we have this in our own hymnody uh, in the church. So you think a rock of ages cleft for me. Um, there's this great line where uh, top lady says, "Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy laws demands, though my zeal could respite no, for, though my tears could ever flow, uh, none uh, none for sin could they atone." thou must save and thou alone. So mm. the crisis propitiation uh, highlights red stamps, you know, underlines all, all the above uh, how salvation is of sheer and magnificent grace because only God can provide such a, such a sufficient uh, sacrifice to, to yeah. atone for our, our great offenses against him. The last thing that this the, that we want to say is is not only does this affirm our salvation by faith in Jesus, it assures us of our salvation. And because again, our salvation is not based on our works or abilities; it's only based on Christ's uh, Christ's perfect life and righteousness and His perfect sacrifice. Jesus, in other words, is the perfect propitiation. Try saying that three times fast, mm. um, because he covered his death covers any and all sins throughout time, space, and history. The cross satisfies God's wrath and is the proof of God's love for us. Um, you know, as uh, as Voss put it, uh, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that He never uh, that He never began, because He just always did, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that is good news for us. Yeah, it's always good to end with a with a quote from Voss, and just to say that you know the reason we know that God will never stop loving us is because He never started. Yes, he, he loved us he, from he, the beginning. He, from the beginning and before that, before there was a before, God has has a set and determined love uh, for His people, 
and was determined to do what was necessary to bring them into communion with him uh, forever. And that included the means uh, that we've talked about today, which is by Christ acting as atonement. So it's the cross doesn't make it to where God can love us. You might hear it put that way. And it's true that the cross makes it where God can accept us while remaining holy and righteous. Mm -hmm. But it's not that the cross made it where so that God could love us, but instead it's that the cross proves that he did love us. That's what we've read so much. Uh, when we referred to first John four, so many times a day, it's not that he sent, sent the son to die in order to love us, but because he loved us eternally. And so we mm -hmm. look to the cross and we can know that eternal love of God that will never stop because it, it never got started in the first place. It, he's always been in, been of a disposition of affection uh, yes. towards his, his people, even before there, there was a before, as we just said. All right. That is a great note for us to end on. So Josh, thanks for talking about this and thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.